Hi, everybody. It is uh, the 20th of May, 2021. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is episode 76 of my live chat. Hope you're doing well. Uh, I am from Showtime and CBS Sports. I'm also one half of the hosting duo of Morning Combat, on which this cha this uh, chat appears on that channel. Yeah? Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Let's do this here very quickly if we can. Like this. You guys know the drill, right? Thumbs up on the video. Hit subscribe. If you're new here, welcome. If you are a regular, welcome. Whatever, uh, whatever reason brings you here today, I am glad you are here. What will we get to today? I'm sure whatever is latest and greatest in the news of combat sports and anything else that's kind of on your mind. Uh, all right. So let's, uh, by the way, I'm only one minute late because we, if you look at the schedule, we're set to start at 3.05, start at 3.06. So not too bad. Uh, okay. With that out of the way. Let's get this party started, shall we? All right. Uh, if I look a little haggard, it's because I am. I was out in the front yard. Boy, the cicadas are here, huh? Anybody who lives on the East Coast or around the area where, what are they called, Brood X? They've been underground for 17 years, and uh, now they're back. And uh, you can see little holes all in my front yard. I think I have a picture I took uh, of one of them, of the shells. Yeah, here it is. There's two shells here. This is my old phone, but if you guys can see that. See that? These are the shells of uh, cicadas. So there's nothing in them. This is what they shed, almost like a... I mean, obviously, they're very different creatures, but something uh, relatively akin to a, uh, a skin, or uh, excuse me, a snake shedding of skin. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're everywhere. Well, not, not quite everywhere yet, but you, you're beginning to see them. Um, I look like shit uh, because I was trying to squeeze in a little fitness time because I'm old and washed and pathetic. So you can see I'm a little sweaty. Sorry. I doubt anyone really cares. All right. Uh, again, I have these because I like them. You're under certainly no obligation to have them, nor do I necessarily recommend them. I just like them. Let's see if I can open this without tearing off the plastic. Take that, Thor. Huh? You can deadlift almost a thousand plus pounds, but 501 kilos, but I can tear off the lid of a sports drink. Eat shit. All right. Let's get this party started. Yeah? Questions. Okay. If you were in Nate Diaz's corner, what would be your game plan to beat... Oops, let me turn this off, too. Sorry. There we go. If you were in Nate Diaz's corner, what would be your game plan to beat Leon Edwards? I don't see how he beats him um, without pressure. I think pressure is going to be absolutely key. And pressure doesn't mean blindly walking forward. Um, but it does mean if Leon Edwards is able to effectively blitz angle off, um, stick and move, maintain distance. If Nate is following versus cutting, it's going to be a real problem for him. I think he's got to keep the fight, certainly within his punching range. I think you got to stay out of kicking range to the extent possible. Um, and I think you got to really, you just really have to put Edwards on the back foot because Edwards is not going to be like the pure boxer that Nate is. And he's certainly not going to be the ground technician that Nate is. I think that's pretty clear, but he doesn't really have to be. 
I've gone over this a, a lot. Edwards has a very interesting game. To me, it's a little on the boring side, if I could be honest. But I can't really... I'm not mad at it because he's the master of positions, but really getting to them halfway. We've gone over this a million times, whether that's 50-50 standing, but he's the one doing the pressing into the fence. He'll put one hook in on the back. Um, or you know he'll just stay in half guard or something like that. He's the key of kind of riding out these positions where he's the one doing well. If the person scrambles, he can either let them go, or if he really wants to fight for it, he he's in a more dominant position to be ahead in that scramble. And um, and he can do that for five rounds, no problem. So it's not like you really have to test someone's ground game, so to speak. Like who has a better ground game, Edwards or Nelson? Gunnar Nelson. Gunnar Nelson does, but Gunnar Nelson lost that fight. I mean, he lost it for a variety of reasons, not simply related to ground game issues, but you get the idea. So it's not really about that. You got to make him fight under your terms. I would take a very similar approach to what he did to like, you know, obviously he's a very different fighter, but something like Pettis or third round, second fight McGregor, firing an underhook, getting him against the fence, draining on him, pulling him off, balancing him, working the body over and over, um, the fact that they made it five rounds is super smart. I mean, Leon Edwards had COVID, which, you know, not the biggest deal in the world at this point in terms of his long-term uh, future. But between that and, more significantly, the layoff, uh, you know, you got to put intense heat on him. And Diaz can do that, uh, especially over five rounds he can do that. It's a tough fight, though. It's a tough fight. <laughs> This is a silly question. I'm really going to skip the second one. People hating on BC. I don't know why, dude. BC's killing it right now. Um, oh, that's funny. Hey, Luke, what was one of your memorable FDC moments? One of mine is when a sister battery shot outside of the safety box. Oh, fucking Lord. And put the battalion into check, fire, freeze, and we had to walk over to the gun line and help ram out a 155 millimeter round. <laughs> Jesus, I never had anything like that. I only had one moment where one of the we had a we had an FO Ford Observer on the hill, and you know you got to be able to read a map, see what you're looking at, and then you make the call for fire. Right, you do a call for fire mission, and the charge was fine. Uh, I mean, it's when we were going over it, everything was fine, but I forget, God, the mechanics at this point, I was a brand new FO. I forget what it was, but I remember that they either they misfired on the gun line or we gave them the wrong number or something. But what ended up happening was the round landed really close to our tower, not close to the tower in terms of like life threatening, but close enough. We were like, whoa. <laughs> what happened? It knocked shit off the top of it. It sat a couple of us down. It was like, Ooh, that could get dicey if that happened again. That was kind of bad, but uh, that's it. I've never had any like crazy scenarios like that. Do you have any opinions on Scottish Taekwondo Olympian Jack Hall? <laughs> almost had me complete the whole thing. Almost, almost, you fucks. Almost, almost. That's funny. All right. Uh, thoughts on the fallout between Habib, Chemaev, and Kadyrov. I have barely followed this, in part because this is mostly a Kadyrov thing, which, from what I can tell, Chemaev 
has kind of ch- sort of cheer-led um, and played along with Habib, you know, maybe speaking cryptically here or there, but largely silent about it. I'd say good for Habib, you know, the less you're under that guy's... You ever seen these movies? I think I've talked about this on this chat before. Like, go back and watch the Christopher Waltz depiction of the Nazi officer that he played in... Um, in uh, Inglorious Bastards, but you can see this in like Sophie's Choice and anytime really the Nazis are played, they just seem so pushy. And like obviously, you know, that's not that's the least thing about them to worry about. But I mean, like when you watch them on screen or things like that, or they're just always making you go along with what you want, the, uh, what they want you to do, and they're very much about having their own way. And um, you know, everyone just kind of goes along with it to the extent that there is a rift between Habib and Kadyrov. That's good for Habib, quite frankly. I, th- I bet he is glad to be outside of the... Uh, I mean, you can never really fully separate yourself, I guess, unless you really did move every, all of your family out of that region. But, you know, to the extent that th- you're not their focus uh, and you're not being asked to do things at their request or on their behalf or for their various needs... I would imagine Habib is frankly fucking delighted. I doubt, seriously doubt, he is broken up over this one way or the other. The other part might be that Shemaev is natively Chechen. Obviously, he lives in um, Sweden, but he's natively Chechen. And perhaps Kadyrov was like, eh, that guy is Dagestani. They're kind of like, you know, same, same, but different, but still same. And obviously, there's some history there between those people. Shemaev, there's not. Maybe that's what partly what it is. Um, Kadyrov's sort of hard to read. I mean, the idea would be like, you know, um, to the extent that he can get benefit of Khabib, he would still be using it. I suspect that behind the scenes, there must have been some kind of rebuffing that's happened, which is interesting if true. I'd, lo- I'd love to get more information about what really is behind it um, because we're kind of tr- asked to being to put the pieces of the puzzle together. I, I would just say if you're Khabib, you're probably delighted. You're probably delighted. Even if you... Sh- Again, that doesn't necessarily mean that Habib and Kadyrov don't share similar worldviews. Um, it's hard to exactly parse what this says about Habib's views on the world. But if I was him and I no longer had to answer to the same degree to a murderous tyrant that I did before, I would consider that something of a relief. MMA reports, usually on big sites, often complain about working hours and sometimes pay. We always talk about fighters' pay structure. What can you say about MMA media pay structure? Yeah, it's pretty bad. I could tell you who is, uh, I could tell you who's making money if you want. I mean, not that I've seen everyone's pay stubs or anything, but I kind of know. I'll tell you who's making, like, um, you know, once you get to, like, um, he just left the athletic, but let's, you know, once you get to, like, a Ben Folks or I think a Mark Ramundi kind of level senior, very important. Well, more, uh, at this point, I would say that Folks is insanely important to the athletic, but, um, you know, once you get to one of those positions, I don't know what he makes from his podcast, but those guys are going to be very comfortable, probably. I don't know exactly what they might be making, but they're probably going to be pretty comfortable. Um, anybody who does any kind of broadcasting or television is going to make the most. So uh, Ariel's probably making very good money. Uh, I bet Okamoto makes a decent check. Um, Karen Bryant probably makes a good check. I wouldn't count Laura Sanko in MMA media because to me it's like if you have to get a credential, that is more media. I don't think she does. So, um, well, everyone has to have credentials, but to apply for a media credential. So I would count Karen Bryan that and not so much 
um, Laura Sinkle. Anybody who does any broadcasting of any kind, and in particular on television, is probably going to make some good money. So uh, BC makes decent money. Uh, I make decent money. Not crazy good money, but I make good money. Um, who else out there could you say makes a check? Who's MMA media? Not many. Not oh Kevin Ioli, I, I know makes some some decent coin from what I've heard. Um, some good coin actually. He makes good money from what I've heard. Um, so basically, the answer is you need to be really important to the media outlet of which you are a part. Um, to the extent you can do any television broadcasting, any broadcasting in general. Radio pays, but only if you're like really, 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 really high level. Like a, you have to have national syndication or um, something like that. You know, so there's there's maybe a dozen less than that who are making. I would say, no, there's probably even less than that. There's probably seven or eight of us who are making like what y'all might consider to be. Um, uh, you know, really respectable uh, money. Uh, I can tell you that for me, what was happening was I'll just tell you guys the truth. I had money coming in from SiriusXM, I had money coming in from Showtime, and I had money coming in from my YouTube channel. And when CBS tried to hire me, I said, "You gotta match." I- I'm not taking a step back. You gotta match the sum total of that for me to give it up, uh, and and then a little bit extra on top. And they did. They did. So now I get one check that reflects the totality of the previous three, which is luck. You know, I mean, yes, I've been working hard, but there's a lot of people who work hard. Like working hard, you know, that's not, I mean, people always be like, what you got to do is you got to work hard. And that's true. Like if you don't, unless you know someone, it it, pro- it almost certainly won't happen. But you got to understand something just because you actually put in the work does not necessarily mean it will translate to that. You have to have a vision. You have to network. You have to really show uh, skill. You have to set yourself apart. There's a lot of pieces of that puzzle that go into it. But in general, I think you see a lot of guys, man. Part of there's sort of a two part problem. One is that one there's not a lot of jobs. It's like Supreme Court vacancies. You got to wait until someone dies or gets fired, and and you know, have you know, I mean, how many times have you seen guys? I mean, if you're new to the sport, you won't you won't really appreciate this, but like. When I came up, the people who were ahead of me, you know, they were, uh, they're basically all gone. Uh, not, not in totality, that's not quite true, but they're nowhere even close to what the top of the food chain is now. Because once you lose a job, um, sometimes you can, like, if you get fired or you get laid off, sometimes you can transition to a new place. But you can see, like, look at how many of those guys got laid off from The Athletic, and they're all fucking gems every last one of them it wasn't like fighting or junkie ran over to go pick them up you know or bloody elbow or whatever i mean they got certain places they did okay you know but um so there's not a lot of jobs and then most of the jobs are going to pay you know a respectable amount if you can get a full-time gig but there's not many full-time gigs and so what you see is a lot of guys or ladies cobbling together get a little bit of check here a little bit of check here a little bit of check here and then when you combine all of that it turns into a really nice, or or I should say, you know, a decent, like you can't complain, so to speak. It's a nice middle-class living 
over the course of those of those three. But that's a hard way to go. If you lose one of them, it can be precarious because you were kind of counting on that. It's 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 a hard way to make a living. I mean, if you can make good money in MMA media, I mean, ask yourself how many people in MMA media, either now or ever, have made you know consistently year over year over a hundred grand per year. Not many, not many, um, not many at all. And then if you take out anyone who's got any television experience, that that would fall, I think almost to a few people that I mean that's how hard it is but that's not necessarily the case although it still could be quite difficult uh in some of the more traditional sports so the answer is you can make good money it is possible it's going to take a really long time you have to work really hard you have to get a little bit of luck um you're just going to wait your turn and there's not many jobs and the jobs can be quite precarious and uh, you may have to have a few of them at a time to make a check work it's tough. It can be tough. What did you think of Gregor Gillespie's performance? What matchup would you like for him next? Islam, Paul Felder, RDA, or Kevin Lee rematch? The, the Lee, God, if the Lee rematch had not been so utterly dominant, or the first fight, I should say, so utterly dominant that I wouldn't really care to see that again, but now that he's been off so long, Maybe, um, maybe the Paul Felder fight, I think is a good fight. Uh, I thought he looked, that was a better example of who Gregor is and what he's capable of than the Kevin Lee fight. I showed, I think that's pretty fair. Um, didn't necessarily, you know what? That's actually a really good win because, um, it was, what's his face? It was Carlos Diga Fajera, right? If memory serves. Let's see, just, I don't want to talk completely out of my ass. Yes, he had lost to Kevin Lee in 2019, took basically almost two years off, not quite, and then came back at a catch weight because Fajeda had missed weight and then had a fight of the night sort of thing. Um, that's his best win by a million miles, and the wins before this were really great too. Honestly, like a lot of people get really down in the details, like I need to see this fight, I need to see that fight, any particular, any of those. I, the Kevin Lee won probably not, but an Islam probably, well, I, I like that more than the Islam Tiago Moises fight. Candidly. Um, RDA is a good one, too. He's looking for a fight. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways you can go. I mean, I guess I'm just trying to figure out. Cardio's great. Obviously, wrestling is great. Aggression is great. Scrambling is great. Um, but there's a lot of other missing pieces there that I, I don't know we have a full grasp on. Um, exactly what did he learn from the Kevin Lee fight? There's a little bit more that has to be shown. But he has high athletic potential. It's just, uh, but he's 34. You got to get busy. So really, you're like nitpicking about, not, not you, I'm not saying that, but like there's a little bit of nitpickery. Like what makes the most sense? Dude, get him back out there. Because the clock's ticking. Uh, would it ever be possible for you to, to, to watch WrestleMania with BC in exchange? He has to watch ADCC. I got to tell you, watching the last few rounds of ADCC sucks. Because of the way the rules go, where um, they're not that great at wrestling, wrestling, and until they allow guard pulling, you just see this like terrible inability to, for one guy to ever do anything to the other one. Like they're trying to force wrestling more into submission grappling, and it to a large extent it has worked. But in terms of the rules, they haven't quite twe tweaked them enough where. Dude, the last couple of rounds of ADCC, it's a lot of 
dudes stalling out. Now, now Gordon going through and just running through motherfuckers is a little bit different, but like, I don't know. Like, uh, I remember ADCC, what was it, 2017? It was just interminable. Couldn't believe how bad some of the wrestling was. So, and also, you know, well, I guess WrestleMania is two nights as I understand it, but, you know, ADCC can go for a few days. So, I don't know if that's a fair trade. I've watched WrestleMania. I watched the one with Rousey and whoever the fuck. You know, it was dumb, but people loved it, so whatever. Uh, Luke, big fan. I was wondering if there's any chance for Britain to ever close the gap to the U.S. in terms of wrestling. Wrestling classes seem to be a lot more common than just a few years ago, and some schools are now offering as part of their PE classes. With the growth of MMA and possibility of Olympic success... With prospects such as Nick Gurr, do you think UK and Western European nations will start producing wrestling specialists in the near future? Or is it always going to be a niche sport that people train at as part of their MMA preparation? Well, listen, I have good news for you if you're from this part of the world. Um, in terms of MMA, I'm not going to say the gap is completely closed. I don't think that's fair because you're still getting a lot of D1 you know, high-level studs coming over and giving people who who might have even wrestled D2 or D3 or even other D1 guys. There's still some of these hammers that are coming through and giving everyone problems. So in that sense, uh, there is still a little bit of a gap in MMA. But dude, like the gap relative to when I first started, dude, let me tell you something about wrestling in the UK in 2000. When did I first started like, you know, writing about it? 2005 or so, something like that. Uh, you know, <laughs> Michael Bisping was far and away your best wrestler. And he had great takedown defense. Don't misunderstand me. But, like, you know, it was not great at all. You had good strikers coming out of there, for sure. Mark Weir was a guy early on who was a phenomenal striker out of the UK. Um, Ian the Machine Freeman, sort of all-around kind of guy. You had some good fighters, and you definitely had some great talent. But the wrestling 15 years ago, dude, it was fucking terrible. It was not good. Now look at all of these guys coming out, man. You got uh, you know Fabian Edwards is fighting tomorrow. Obviously, he's the brother of Leon Edwards. Both of them have pretty good takedown defense. Um, but more than that, you know, you, you can just go down the line. Arnold Allen, phenomenal takedown defense. I think Darren Till has good takedown defense. I mean, all of them. In that sense, in MMA, the gap has closed almost immeasurably. I mean, a massive, massive amount. And I think you should take a lot of pride in that. Like, dude, London... And, and and all the cities, really, that, that produce like high-level fighters out of that part of the world, the level of wrestling has gotten just infinitely better, okay? I really don't look... You used to look at a European fighter and be like, okay, but what about... You know, what about that? I mean, you know, and you kind of knew if they fought any American Frankie Edgar type... I'm not talking about championship Edgar, like pre-championship Edgar... They were going to get run over. You know, they just didn't have a prayer. It doesn't It doesn't feel that way anymore at all. Like, I never look at it that way. I mean, yes, you need to be cognizant of what team they're from and what individual strengths or weaknesses that a fighter might have. But please don't misunderstand me. The level of wrestling in the UK for MMA purposes has taken off like a rocket in the last 15 years. Now, as it relates to the broader sporting community, that's a different thing. Um... Because even with Title IX, if you guys don't know what that is, it's basically a law that was passed where colleges have to spend and then offer an equal amount of uh, opportunity to both men and women athletically. And there's a lot of controversy about it. That has gutted a lot of wrestling. But even with that decline, the U.S. men's freestyle uh, team is 
they're not the best in the world by any stretch. Um, well, although you know they can, they're they're a very good high level team. They're not going to beat altogether every time the Russians and the Iranians, but they're going to hold their own and they're going to be very competitive and um, they're quite good. Do I really ever see the UK competing like that? Because that comes from wrestling, you know, in the age of the single digits all through all your scholastic life, having a pipeline, having the tournaments to go to, having the competitors to drive you, having the, the, the level of instruction that's there. You know, if you're a high-level gym and you're getting guys to come through and you're teaching them just certain parts of wrestling that they might need for fighting and you can afford to buy a high-level coach and you get a young athlete who's dedicated enough, man, it turns out you can do a lot with that. Turns out you can do a lot with that, but but that next level where all they do is wrestling, where it becomes part of the sporting fabric to a degree of the country. Now, I don't know. I'm not in the United Kingdom. I'm not in Wales. I'm not in Scotland. I'm not in Northern Ireland. I'm not in, in Britain. I, I don't exactly know what the picture looks like there, but to get to that other stage that I'm talking about where every year you're just producing hordes of super... I mean, you understand something here, right? Our universities... University of Iowa, Penn State University, these are huge. Like, what is the undergraduate population at the University of Pennsylvania? Uh, let's see. Population. Okay, this is just undergraduate. So this doesn't include any law schools, any med schools, nothing. We got 10,000 people there. Let's go University of Iowa. A little smaller than I thought it would be. Yeah, 24,000 people. I mean, how about Arizona State? What about that? Another super powerhouse. 74,000. They had 74,000 undergrads. You know what I mean? And, you know, that's, that's obviously the entire graduating population. I'm just trying to point out, like, you got these all over the country. Stanford, by the way, is not getting rid of their wrestling program. And every year they're churning out just demons one after the other in all these fucking weight classes. And then, dude, if you've ever been to like, if you're from England and you don't know this, you should go down to parts of Minnesota uh, and Iowa and see how big, uh, in that case it'd be folk style wrestling. It wouldn't be the Olympic freestyle, though there's obviously a lot of similarities. See how popular that is as an attendance sport. People just pay tickets to go show up and watch that shit. You just can't believe it. You cannot believe it. So, you know, to get to that, because Iran's got what we've got, but even more. Russia's got what we got, but even more. You want to compete on that level? I think that's probably generations away, if ever. But on the MMA side of things, yeah. And also, here's the other part, too. Like, even if, you know, Great Britain never gets to a part where they're, you know, on par with the you know, Iran's of the world or whatever in terms of wrestling, that doesn't mean that they won't produce a couple of studs along the way, right? I mean, can you imagine like a freestyle? I mean, there must be some at some point, but I mean, can you imagine like a British or something like that, Jordan Burroughs coming through 74 kilo, just hammering everybody, winning world titles on a gold medal. Maybe the rest of that team's not necessarily so great, but you get some one standout. And to your point, there's enough development around it where he can kind of, he or she can kind of, um, do some things that's possible i think in our lifetimes but that other part i mean you're talking about you know i don't know how to say it like <laughs> if you took wrestling out of uh out of minnesota and the dakotas and iowa and parts of pennsylvania new jersey 
I think there's people who wouldn't know what to do with their lives. Literally, I mean that. They would not know what to do with their lives. I, I, you know, that's a hard thing to say for some other countries. But in fairness, I've not been to the UK since 2004. It's been a, well, uh, I haven't visited the UK since 2004. So, you know, I haven't seen a lot of things. Is Sandhagen versus Dillashaw the most fascinating technical matchup we'll see in 2021? Probably. I would love to see Lomachenko rematch Lopez. I don't think it's going to happen, but uh, probably. Boy, this thriller shit. The fuck is on my lip? Jesus Christ. What are they going to do? Triller? Roy Jones told Chris Mannix on his podcast, he's suing him. For failure to pay, pay or pay requisite, whatever it was. Um, Mike Tyson wants nothing to do with him. They've got a Holyfield fight that no one cares about. They've got no Jake Paul. They've got no Logan Paul. They do have Teo, but they have Teo in a fight that they have grossly overpaid for, and no one knows who his partner or his uh, opponent is. Um, <laughs> I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know what they're going to do. What do you think is Colby's hardest fight in the near future? Colby, Leon, or Wonderboy? The Wonderboy one is is the dark horse candidate in terms of the choices you have laid out here. Colby, Leon, Wonderboy. He's the dark horse candidate. But gun to the head scenario, I'm going to go Colby. I think Colby is going to give Komaru the most chance of a problem. And I think probably... A fair amount of problems. I think he's going to go much more active with the wrestling. There might be some stalling there. There might be some scrambling there. There might be some close, close rounds. I don't think he's going to go in there and just dominate Kamaru. That seems to me not likely, but taking a few I mean, he took a few rounds from him just striking last time. Granted, that's not the same striker that's there this time, but, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Colby changed things up, went to MMA Masters. I know they don't get a lot of credit. That's a very good camp with very good trainers with very good track record. I mean, they're solid down there, those folks in Miami. So um, I think Colby versus Kamaru too. I'm not necessarily excited for the buildup and the Marty fake newsman and all that shit. The, that stuff's kind of lame, but the fight itself, the fight itself might be very good. Top five favorite fighters, regardless of promotion and why. All right, top five. I'll just say, um, I won't rank this top five as in best, because I don't think it really is a, is, a, is a fruitful exercise. Top five, I like to watch. I'll go, he's retired, so I would have said Habib, but probably him number one. I'll go Adesanya. I'll go Sandhagen. I'll go... And this is just right now. This can change if you ask me like in a couple of months. You said fighters. I think you mean MMA fighters. Um, I do love to watch Teofimo Lopez box. I really do. I, I really enjoy that. Okay, so I'll go Corey, Israel. Um, Max. Um... 
Man, that's a tough one. I might throw Kamara in there. And then... Probably Gaethje, maybe? Something like that? Honestly, outside of a couple, it, the it's like one, two, maybe three, and then the four and the five would be way further apart, even though uh, numerically it's the one right behind. The, the distance between what I would want to see, because there's a bunch at that point, like, you know, this top prospect out of Norfolk, Virginia, which, by the way, they pronounce Norfolk, which I fucking hate. But uh, out of Norfolk, Virginia, Miranda Maverick looks like a super interesting fighter to pay attention to. I really love it when she competes. You know, MVP for all the criticisms, and I think many of them are quite correct, of his resume. He's kind of interesting to watch, you know. Um, Masvidal I get pumped for. I like watching Rose. Um, I'm excited for the return of Tatiana Suarez. These are fighters that, like, when they compete, I kind of lean into the screen a little bit, you know. Um, Dustin Poirier is a little bit that way for me, too. I really like his boxing, man. He's really interesting to me. Um, but the guys who are just kind of innovating, who have thought about the game, who are, you know, or in the case of Gaethje, made tremendous progress under the tutelage of one of the great minds of our time. You know, those, the ones who are just doing things a little bit ahead of the curve. That's where, that's where, because, you know, when you're ahead of the curve, um, you just make the rest of the pack look so dummied. But if you've done this long enough, you know that that advantage doesn't last. And then when it goes away, the whole shit comes apart sometimes. So uh, it's fun to pay attention to them to see how long they can maintain it, you know. Would Cowboy versus Ferguson too? Nah. I don't want to see that. Uh, also, can merch be shipped to South Africa? I mean... They say that the new round of merch will be shippable to that place, but I'll believe that when I see it. So, uh, Luke, is there a way to get a thumbnail of a pay-per-view fight inside the octagon instead of the weigh-ins when doing post-fight results? It might generate more views instead of think it's an old video due to the thumbnail. Probably. Probably, yes. Mm-hmm. I don't make those. I make the ones for my own channel when I upload, but um, someone else handles it for Morning Combat, but I can certainly relay that message to them, sure. So will there ever be a time when the sport of MMA is franchised to cities, like how other sports leagues do it? Fighters in their city compete for division championships, then move on to national tournament-style fights and crown the ultimate weight class um, champions. Well, that already has existed and in boxing it still exists. There's Golden Gloves, um, which starts out regionally and then moves uh, national. Um, I don't know if there's international Golden Gloves. I don't think that's quite true. But uh, yes, that exists. And uh, you missed the days of the International Fight League, which had the Tokyo Sabres, the Quad City, which is out of Iowa, Silverbacks, the, what were some other ones? There was a team in California, I think like the Condors. There was, what were the IFL teams? Now, that's a funny little thing. Tokyo Sabres, Quad City Silverbacks. I don't know if I can remember the name of the other teams. IFL teams. What was their names? Here we go. Toronto Dragons, Tokyo Sabres, Tucson Scorpions. Uh, let's see. There we go. 
Quad City Silverbacks, Los Angeles Anacondas, Seattle Tiger Sharks, New York Pitbulls. Um, yeah, it's crazy. There was a bunch of teams like this. They tried it. No one gives a fuck. Doesn't work that way. That's what I was trying to tell people. What's like, oh, we should have tournaments. Tournaments are fun. They're fine. Um, you should do them when they when they make sense, right? Like for Bellator right now with light heavyweight, I think that that makes sense. They lost Romero, but in general, you signed a bunch of names. You got some other ones. It's a pretty good division for your organization. Have them fight it out, sort it, and you know, package it as something that fans should pay attention to. That makes sense to me. But just having tournaments all the time, the way that Bellator used to do it. I mean, you guys don't remember the days of Bjorn Rebney. I had so many phone calls with that guy where he would try and explain to me like the value of it. And then I'd have a phone call fucking six weeks later and be like, okay, we're going to amend this and we're going to amend that. And right before he got let go, they were doing this bit where it was like, if you've been in a season uh, tournament before, you now enter this pool where in the pool you could be a part of the matchmaker model. You wouldn't have to go back into the tournament because what happened was they would have these guys go through these tournaments. And what they found out, man, was like having a couple of tournaments is great. And they would do them much more in succession they wouldn't do one night tournaments they would do them like i think it was like a month apart you know so if you fought in august you had to be ready by september unless you had some kind of injury to go fight the next motherfucker in line by the way he just beat someone to meet you so like you ain't fighting some chump and uh, they would grind these fucking guys to a pulp i think it shortened the careers of a lot of guys not mike chandler so much but i think pat Curran it fucked him up a little bit and he was a, he, he remained a very very good fighter for a long time shabalashama live was another one of these guys but what you find is the point I'm trying to make here is whether you're trying to do this thing with cities or with tournaments or whatever, matchmaker, match, the matchmaker model is like democracy. It's the worst form of matchmaking except for all the others. Like anything you want to point out about the matchmaking model sucking ass is probably, you're probably right. Your hunch is that like, wow, it shouldn't be this way. Like that is inherently unfair to this party or isn't there a better way to solve for this problem than some of the problems associated with the matchmaker model. But the reason why the matchmaker model exists not merely across combat sports, but is just so enduring year over year, organization over organization, is not because other players haven't tried it. It's because they've tried it and failed miserably. How much money did International Fight League get in financing? I mean, they got hundreds of millions of money, uh, of dollars. And they had Kurt Otto from Wizard Magazine, which was a big, I don't know if it's still around, but back in the day, um, well, Gary Sheamus from Wizard. Anyway, it's huge, like comic book magazine. And they had all of these signatories. They had a broadcast deal. They had a fuck ton of money. They had a decent roster. They really did. They had some legendary name. I mean, they had so much shit. And they bottomed out like that, you know. Uh, people don't give a fuck about that shit. Like, they don't care about the team aspect in fighting. They don't really care about all the things that we like. Oh, they do this in other sports. Then that's what they do in other sports. Dude, it, it, you just got to learn to accept it. If people want to try something, certainly I'm not here to talk them out of it. You know, uh, we want to do things a little bit differently. We want to have some fun. Hey, man, go have some fun. But be prepared to spend a lot of money and to lose a lot of money. And... um there just doesn't appear to be a lingering consumer appetite for anything other than the matchmaker model. I don't know how else to explain it. It is just it's just something that I have seen challenged over and over and over and every fucking time it fails 
to an extraordinary degree. Now, you've got the PFL doing something a little bit different where they've got points and there's a blah, 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 and it's a season, and they've kind of dressed it up a little bit. But at the end of the day, man, they're, they're pairing them how they want to pair them, uh, at least in the early stages. And obviously, as they advance, it's a little bit different. But they haven't they, – did they set out a bracket? I don't know if they set out a bracket, right? Like, they think they can still match them up in different directions. I could get that wrong, but still, in general – it's like democracy. It's the worst form of matchmaking except for all the others. Does it surprise you that Brazilians have four belts again? Do they really have that good of a pool of athletes? Yeah, dude. <laughs> I mean, Brazil is home to absolute fucking hammers. You know. It's a huge population. It's a culture that loves it. Um, I, I don't want to overstate the connection between material difficulty and poverty and the success of fighters, but I don't want to ignore it either, nor do I wish to make that principally about how I identify with Brazil. Brazil is a wonderful place. Um, my wife's actually got some family from Brazil. Couldn't be sweeter. Uh, you know, it's got its problems like any other place, but... Um, you know, as a people, Brazilians, my experience with them has been just absolutely wonderful. It's been one of the best parts of my life is getting to know Brazilians, you know, it's the, or through, through MMA anyway. It's been very, very rewarding, you know, and it's changed my life. And I think depending on to what extent you have any relationship with any Brazilians like that, it's probably changed your life too. Um, I'm not at all. I, okay, okay. I'm not surprised in the sense of like the national makeup of what has what was there. I am a little bit surprised in the sense that there. I know internally there have been some concerns at various organizations, not limited to UFC, about the next crop of Brazilian fighters. You have to understand something, dude. When when I came up, <laughs> I mean, it was mostly Brazilians, or at least you know, not, that's not true either. But like. There were, you couldn't swing a dead cat and not hit a Brazilian with a belt around his waist, man. Everywhere you went. And they had fucking gym wars. And what I mean by that is not in the gym, but like, dude, pride was built to a degree, to a degree, on the rivalry between shoot to box and Brazilian top team. I mean, they fucking hated each other, and it was bragging rights in the whole nine yards, and they had different styles, and they had fucking just great storylines and there was just I mean and then forget all that forget the pride you look over UFC and Babalu was over there fucking people up and you do and, and then Marilla Santana Tan, well, no sorry um, not Marilla Santana he's the great guy out of Unity BJJ but um, um, uh, Bustamante you know one of the most forgotten guys in all of MMA history great champion great guy I mean Ricardo uh, Arona you just go down the list dude there have been so fucking many and they were in so many weight classes and they were utterly dominant they dude it, it doesn't get talked about enough there was a wave of when it, when the when the when the tough boom hit so let's say post 2005 there were so many Brazilians at a very 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 advanced level already now obviously there might be more today because MMA has grown in national stature, not merely here, but there as well. And there's more gyms, there's more ways to recruit. In some sense, it's it's sort of more popular now. But there was this first graduating wave, and you know the Nogueras and the and the Hua brothers, and I mentioned a bunch of names already. And of course, you know even the early Valley Tudo guys. And and dude, Brazil was home to these legendary battles between like the 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 Juju Bray boys and um, 
and uh, Luta Livre and the and the jujitsu guys and like you know it was this rich tapestry of martial arts and then the Pedro Hizos came out and they were innovating like with the leg kicks and blah 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 dude it, you can't tell the story of modern MMA at all. Uh, forget about the part about you know just the the Gracies and everything that they've meant. I mean I haven't even talked about that part, but we're talking about a little bit past that, right? Two thousand five and so. It was just they they just they just dominated the space. It felt to me like there was a Brazilian every which way. I felt like I learned more about the country Brazil <laughs> than any other country. Maybe 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 Canada had more of a profile in in, in MMA's uh, orbit at that time, but um, it, you know just a tremendous just a wealth and so the next generation after the anderson silvas began to retire and the nogueras went away and you were like where where's that next wave and the truth is the following wave isn't nearly as big as the first one but some of those first names are still kind of hanging on a little bit like the jose aldos he was part of the end of that wave more than the beginning or the middle part but i still kind of count him in there they're still kind of doing their thing a little bit and they're they're not as dominant because MMA has become so much more global, but it does turn out that they're still going to be a powerhouse, man. Even with an economic downturn, even with a pandemic, even with everything else, you know, Brazil is a very, very important part. Now, there might be also arguments to be made about like to what extent, you know, promotions have done something to prime the pump. But actively seeking them out. By the way, we didn't even talk about the Pitbull brothers. They're sort of a newer generation. I think there was just some... The, the point is, there was concerns about the handoff from one generation to the next and whether that second one would be as grand as the first. And I don't think they're going to be as grand, but it turns out that they're still going to be pretty good. Really good. All right, so let's get to this because everyone thinks it's like the big scandal, although it's not that big a deal, really. Um, Luke, how do you feel as a big fan of Jake Paul? About a signing with Showtime. You're now partners. Yeah, it's funny as shit. I was texting some folks from Showtime. I was like, wow, y'all did. I was like, I can see that in the the hallowed halls of Showtime that my, uh, my, my you know, heartfelt arguments have made quite the impression in that no one listened to a, <laughs> a word of it and went in the opposite direction. Um, you know, what, what am I supposed to say? You know, what do y'all want me to say? You know, it... it Okay, here's how BC basically, BC and I talked about this. First of all, I don't think that Showtime was going to send me to Miami. What is it? The I have to go there the second week or the first week of June. I don't think they were going to send me. I think B, BC lobbied on my behalf to get like MK to go because Showtime was like, what are we going to do with you? And I, Which to, is fair. Like, what are they going to do with me? But if MK is there, here's how I look at it. And I'll break this all down. Obviously, that's not for Jake Paul. It's for Logan Paul. But listen, I've said what I've said. <laughs> Showtime clearly disagreed with all of it. Um, it's here. What can I do? Do I now think that these fights are, these exhibitions are great? No, I don't. I think the whole thing is weird and really quite silly, to be quite honest with you, and maybe a little bit worse than that. But as you can quite tell, it doesn't at all matter what I think. And um, the other part is that I think that these other players in the boxing space, your top ranks, your Showtimes, your PBCs, they're feasting off all the mistakes Triller is making. Um, a little bit different in what top rank is doing, like letting them overpay for Teofimo. You know, like, fuck it, let them pay. Uh, that's fine. You know, again, I don't think 
necessarily Bob hand, Bob Arum handled that all the best ways that he could. But in the Showtime side, like the dude, they're gonna make a fuck ton of money off this. They're in the business with Floyd. Like I'm gonna talk him out of it because I think it's silly that a a guy who doesn't box is gonna box a dude who used to box really well but doesn't box anymore. Like what? What is that? You know what it is? It's some shit that people want to see, I guess. So here's what I'm going to do. I have to make peace with it. I've said what I've had to say about it. I'm not going to change my views. I'm, this is dumb shit. I, you know, I'm not going to change my views on it. Um, but they're going to send me with Brian Campbell, who I care about a lot. I care about Morning Combat a lot. I think you guys, if you watch this, you probably also care about Morning Combat a lot. They're going to send us to Miami. Why don't I just have a little bit of fun? I'm not, I'm not going to change my views, you know? But if I went down there and I was like, man, this is kind of stupid. Like, do y'all want to see that? I don't think anyone wants to see that. I'm not going to pretend that I, you know, oh, wow, Drake Ball could really box now. Like, no. Until he actually boxes somebody who can really box, you know, whatever he's doing is somewhat noteworthy. But I said it before, the door is open for him and his brother. If they want to take boxing seriously and take on someone of a commensurate level... Um, in the boxing world, someone who's, someone who's trying to make their living through that exclusively, um, you know, we'll evaluate him as such. Until that time, then it is, you know, it's sideshowy. I mean, what else do you want me to say? But, uh, you know, BC's, BC basically, I think, is right to say, look, just go down there, try to have a good time, take it for what it is, and. Let it be. So for that week, uh, that's that's my modus operandi. In terms of Jake Paul, again, I don't really understand the consumer demand for this kind of thing, except to say that I know that it exists. Jake, to me, is a little bit more interesting than Logan, although Logan's fighting Floyd. I guess we'll see what happens with him after all, or, you know, exhibitioning Floyd. I guess we'll see what happens after all of that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's... I mean, again, Triller let him walk after one, which is hilarious to me, but... The other part is like, this dude has absolutely dominated conversation inside this sport, although maybe that's waning a little bit now. Not not boxing, but MMA. Maybe that's waning a little bit now. Um, I don't know that I really think he's going to do this for a long time, but I, I guess the big players in boxing, we're going to see how they, I don't know what Showtime's going to do to present it, I need to talk to Brendan Shaw, but I think he's probably going to be down there too. Um, I mean, good for him. <laughs> what do you want me to say? Like, good for him, bro. You know, it, it ain't for me. It ain't for me. It's not for me. You know, I'm not the guy that is like, wow, this is fucking. This is, I, I don't. I don't even know to des- how to describe what, what what it is. Except, it's like I talk. You know who? You know who it was? I asked Floyd Senior. At Mayweather McGregor, I asked them, because Floyd Sr., old men, and this, this is what y'all don't appreciate. MMA doesn't really have a lot of old men, like, hanging around, you know? Like, and I'm not saying this disparagingly, but, you know, Mark Ratner is in MMA, but, you know, he made, he, he, he cut his teeth in boxing. But a dude in boxing, you go to a boxing event, you see a lot of old people. You know, and they're like, oh, this person works with the WBC commission or that person's famous in the regulatory world or sometimes they're just trainers or whatever. You just see a lot of people that are a little bit longer in the tooth, man. 
And I remember one time I talked to Floyd Sr. And the reason why this is so great is because, dude, people in like like old men, they don't give a fuck what you think about anything. They're over it, bro. They don't care about, you know, I got to parse my words or any of that shit. They don't care. And I asked Floyd Sr., I was like, dude, why do people want to see a guy who's never boxed against one of the best boxers of this generation, perhaps maybe ever? And his answer was, he looked me dead in the face and he goes, people like to see weird shit. Okay. That's okay. All right, man. You know, what, what am I going to do? Argue with that? Like, that sounds correct. People like to see weird shit. I, you know, doesn't do much for me, but God bless him. As you can tell, my thought leadership in this podcast and the ones that I do and all the writing that I have done in the last 15 years, it has made quite the difference. You can see it has really affected people. I mean, what is my legacy? Hey, all the shit I think is bad, all the people I work for then went to that direction. You just have to laugh. You have to laugh. You have to laugh, man. It's like, when I saw it, I was like, oh, that is too funny. You know, but I get it. You, and I, you guys get it too. You guys get it too. Showtime, I think what they, here's what I think. No one's told me this, but here's what I think. I think that they want to take what little is going to be there. Like, do I think the Pauls are going to have 15 fights? I, I doubt they have 15 fights more between them. They want to take what little is there. They want to do it in a way that is not as off-putting as Triller. And, uh... You know, put it more of a, on the lighter side of things, but a little bit more what you're accustomed to of a traditional boxing broadcast. That's my hunch. And then make some cash, and when it's over, go back to what they're doing. Because you can't really say that the core business of Showtime is disrupted by this. I mean, you can't say that. They laid out their schedule for, I think, most of the year already. We already know most of the big fights that are happening. The two Charlo fights. You got the fight in June with Tank in Atlanta. Like, it's all kind of set out. They just added this on top of it at a sort of a later date. So, what do I think? I think Showtime's going to make a killing. I think that no one gives a shit about <laughs> my opinions inside Showtime or Viacom CBS, even a little bit. And uh, I'm going to enjoy Miami. Oh, by the way, if you guys have any, this is true. If you guys have, don't, and I, here's what I'm looking for. I am not looking, if you know the Miami area, I am not looking for, you know, a recommendation on like some fancy foo-foo place where there's reservations. I know Miami is like real showy. Miami and LA are like really image conscious cities. What car are you in? What, who are you with? What clubs are you in? What clothes are you in? I don't give a fuck about none of that shit. Send me to the place that has great coffee. You know what I mean? Send me to the place that's got, um, what is that stuff that Cubans make? I think it's called mojo. It's like this sort of like uh, acidy, uh, almost like sauce or, or, or liquid that they had. I had it with onions one time, and you put it on patacon. Oh, my God. It is fucking heaven. I want, I want real deal, not bullshit ones, real deal hole-in-the-wall spots. That's where I want to go. I want to go to the Arepas place that like native people from Miami go um, that's that's what I want to say so if you have any suggestions about that in Miami hit me up bro hit me up LukeThomasNews at gmail.com you got any gym recommendations in Miami hit me up LukeThomasNews at gmail.com listen Showtime's going to fly me down to Miami for about a week am I going to cry about it I'm not going to cry about it you know but 
I'm not going to change my opinion. Showtime knows how I knows how I feel, <laughs> and they and they clearly don't care. <laughs> they clearly think my opinions are fucking stupid. So okay. Uh, Luke, with the amount of time it takes to earn a jiu-jitsu black belt, is it worth it for someone that's trying to get into MMA to progress through the belt system and earn his black belt first? Or would simply having uh, a black belt... What the fuck? These are stupid questions. What do you think? Do you, excuse me. Do you think it's likely for the UFC to buy a promotion like they did with Pride and Strike Force in the near future, one or two years? Which promotion would most likely be bought? Dana White has said he would never buy Bellator because he doesn't need the library. A lot of times, this sounds funny, but a lot of times you want to buy an organization if you can to get the the fighter contracts. But the other part is to get the library because you can monetize the shit out of that library. You can do a lot with it. He has said he doesn't want Bellator's library. I find that a little hard to believe. Um, but would Viacom sell them? I mean, they just put them on Showtime, so I doubt that. The other part is, like, do you need... If you're a UFC, do you need to own LFA? Or can you just put LFA on Fight Pass? And no one really talks about this, but wouldn't there be a pipeline between Fight Pass... Excuse me, between LFA and UFC through Fight Pass? Like, if you're an LFA matchmaker... I know that they do send some folks to Bellator. In fact, Jaleel Willis, who's fighting on the main card tomorrow, is from LFA. A very, very good fighter, as a matter of fact. Um, but in general, it's like you, you're going to get a lot of the prospects coming out of that direction by virtue of that. So, like, you know, they're not in the same acquisition phase. Like, buying pride was a big deal. It didn't just reduce the severity of a competitor out there on the other side of the earth. It, it gave you a roster to just change the game completely. Now, there were actually some issues about which contracts they could take, which is why they could buy Pride and they never got Fedor. It's a whole thing. But that would be the idea in theory, right? If you bought this, um, you would get access to these fighters, and now you're, you've totally reshaped the industry. Uh, what happened with Elite XC and IFL, when they went out of business, they had like liquidation sales, I think. And then... You know, there were just bids that had these auctions that happened on like various pieces of what they had, including but not limited to their libraries. And UFC, I think, bid on them or bought them outright. I forget how the whole story goes. But um, so sometimes, like, they, you don't want their fighters, they get released, but you still want other pieces. They might do something like that, depending on how it goes. Would they buy one? I don't, like, why? They, you know, th- 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 there's not a lot in terms of what they could meaningfully add that they don't already have. There are individual pieces. That's true. But like, do you need to buy one to change your position in the industry? No, your position at this point is pretty solidified. Is Cruz's win over DJ the best aged win ever? No, no. I'm going to say like, you know, it's a win that, and really his whole resume Connor's uh, win over Max, and it's a very different Max, but like you look at Connor's resume in general, good fighters he beat along the way. 
I was actually, I was right there. It was in D.C. when Cruz fought DJ. And it's a great win for Cruz, but it was just really apparent that the size difference was a big problem for DJ in that fight. You know, it wasn't like he was skill for skill out of his depth. Uh, it was at like Cruz and DJ, both super high level guys, right? I don't have to tell you that. But Cruz was a lot bigger. He was a lot bigger. And that's not... It's not a knock on Cruz or like, oh, the win doesn't count. Dude, you beat DJ. I don't give a shit what weight you do it at. It's, you know, <laughs> 10 pounds or not. That's, you know, that's going to be a hard, that's going to be a hard task. But it's hard for me to call the best aged win in MMA, one that like really stands the test of time. One that is, I want to be very clear, absolutely a product of the insane level of skill and championship medal that a guy like Dominic, Dominic Cruz had, but a big, big, big component was size. You know, it's hard for me to like put that as like the pinnacle example. What are some crazy stories that you know or have experienced with soldiers or friends in general having roid rage episodes? Roid rage is almost entirely made up. There are certain... Um, anabolic agents and certainly if you just take them recklessly that can cause significant mood alterations but the idea that if you take steroids it results in this inevitable place where you have hulked out and you have uncontrollable rage um, it's simply not true BJ Penn had his first pro fight in the UFC at 22 years old on May 4th, 2001. If this exact BJ Penn at 22 years old debuted today, how would he fare? I think he would do pretty well. Remember, he'd already won the world championships. He was the first American to win the world championships in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So he would still do pretty well. I mean, he beat who did he beat? Cal Uno in his debut? Or was it the Gilbert dude? Who did he beat? I forget sometimes about the early stage of his resume. He's got some weird ones under, like Rodrigo uh, Gracie and stuff like that. That's another name folks have just utterly forgotten. Rodrigo Gracie. Um, so he made his UFC debut against Joey Gilbert. Okay, but then he beat Dean Thomas at UFC 32, and then Cal Uno, and he beat both of them in a matter of minutes. And he beat Cal Uno in 11 seconds. Then he lost to Jens. Yeah, I mean... You know, the game has evolved. Do I need to tell you that in the last 20 years? Pretty far. But I would say for a guy who's got a jiu-jitsu world championship, and obviously there's nothing about BJ Penn. I've said it before, dude. When BJ was in his prime, that was the most exciting and most, you know, image. Not image. Um, certain fighters, you guys know this, right? When you watch them, they make you imagine possibilities. Not ones you have seen, but ones that quite literally you think, God, could they do that? Like... What else could he do? What else could they be? What else is... They, they make you begin to imagine the, the possibility of what is there. BJ Penn was like that times a thousand. Understand, he came in, right? First American to win the Black Belt World Championships, okay? And, he, and then in his first three fights, he had a combined, let's see, two minutes and 53 seconds, and then another round. You know, about a round and a half, and he's dusting off all these guys. I mean, you couldn't imagine a more exciting one. And then for the lightweight title eliminator, he beats Cal Uno in 11 seconds and then walks out. Dude, he was a fucking phenomenon. If you missed it, I'm sorry because it was so special. It was so special. So I still think that that guy would do okay. 
But yeah, like has lightweight moved on pretty significantly since then? Yes. I mean, he was wild and untamed in many ways. His jujitsu was extremely technical, but otherwise he was wild and untamed. What is the best interaction you've ever had with a fighter as well as a fan? Best interaction I've ever had with a fighter. I've had some good ones, man. I've had some good ones. I've had some good ones. Um, you know, it's not necessarily along the lines of um, professional conduct, but there's some times where I've had some difficulties and like out of nowhere, I've had a couple of them check in on me, like very surprisingly. I thought that was really nice. Um, I had, I've had a couple of UFC fighters. This is true. I, I swear on my mother. I've had a few of them ask him to do tape study for him. That's less than nice, more than it is, um, you know, affirming. Asking about nice. What's a really nice thing? Um, listen, man, anytime they spend, they give you a moment of their time, I really believe that. Nate, Nate Quarry really invited me into his world, so to speak, like, you know, meeting his kids and meeting his, well, his kid at the time, anyway, and his significant others, and, like, they share their lives with you, and then they ask you, like, a lot of times... You know, you're always asking fighters about their lives constantly. Not that my life is some interesting thing, but like it's this real one-way thing. The beauty I have found is when the fighter begins to get curious about you. Not that, let me explain what I mean. Not that again, oh me or this journalist or you are all, oh we're so interesting and we haven't been asked about it. We're waiting to break out and we're gonna be stars. In fact, it has nothing to do with what happens in public. It's quite private. I have found that they have a guard up. And they, have, they view media, quite understandably, as something a little bit transactional. Where, you know, you go to media day, you do interviews. And, you know, you develop a tighter relationship with some of these guys than others. But you try not to be super buddy-buddy with them. But, like, you know, when you work with them for long periods of time or something like that, they begin to... Um, you see a lot of the different strains on their lives that they don't ever talk about. And then you begin to have a relationship with them where... I would call it friendship, not in the like, hey, do you want to go get some fucking wings and hang out and drink beers? Not in that sense, but um, I have found that the most profitable, lasting relationships in the business with fighters have come from when they have ceased to view my interaction with them as merely transactional, and then we can share a bit of our lives with each other. I have found that that is really, that cements something lasting. Um you know, I've got that with with uh, a few fighters, but uh, it's rare, and it's it's uh, it's rewarding even when they retire. There's a few of these I'm going to skip. Graphic novels, no. Who is the most underrated fighter in the pound for pound rankings? All right, let's take a look. Here is your top 10 pound for pound. John Jones is one, which I don't understand. Two is Usman. Three is, well, I guess Habib is out, right? So I guess I kind of understand it, but even then I have Usman one. John Jones is one, Usman two, Volkanovski three, Adesanya four, Francis is five, Poirier six, Blahovich, the answer is Blahovich. Figueredo sitting at 10, but even, you know, Blahovich. And that's a fucking guy that, <laughs> you know, 
just wrong more times than I could ever imagine. Uh, 100%. And he jumped up a spot. He was sitting at eight. He's now at seven. It's good that he's finally getting his due. And I don't want to overstate things, but do I think he's going to be a dominant champion for the next five years, even the next two years? No, I don't really think that. Could be wrong about it, of course, but it doesn't even have to be. I think what he's done up to this point has been pretty special. And the way he's turned it around has been pretty special. And I still have not fucking put out the tape study. It's all done. I just haven't put it out. It's all done. I really should put that out because um, I really grew to like his game a little bit here. And I saw the differences. You know what I did? I was like, what the fuck am I missing about this guy a little bit? So I went back and I had two screens, right? I had um, on this side and this side. And on this side, I had the first fight with Jimmy Manoa, which may or may not have been his UFC debut. And then I had the, the rematch with Manoa. And I went round one, round one. Round two, round two, round three, round three. And I watched the differences between them. Because it's not a huge shift in what he's done. It is a incremental refinement that has added up to something quite significant in terms of the results that you get. And uh, it's pretty impressive. It's, it's a guy who was always good, but through refinement and just slow adaptation became great. Uh, or at least very good anyway. And it's impressive, man. It's like... People always ask me, do you have to go to a new coach? Do you have to like really work on this, really work on that? And and, and the story about Jan Blachowicz is, and of course he's had some changes around that related to coaches and that, and that kind of thing. But if you just look at the game, it's just about um, better timing, patience, picking your spots, understanding what works for you, and then making the fight look that way. One of the think that one of the challenges I think Adesanya had against him was Adesanya was I think comfortable with the pace, sort of slow down ish kind of pace. But that is exactly what Blahovich thrives off of. I mean, you, I think Adesanya thought he was fighting at his pace when in fact he was fighting at Blahovich's because there may not be too much of a difference between them, but there's enough that that matters, and he was doing it to like that kind of rhythm. And um, and the and the reason why I think that might have been confusing for him is because, a there's not a dramatic difference between them, but more than that, Blahovich has this way to kind of like pull you into it very subtly, and all of a sudden you're like, why am I fighting this fucking way? Boom, you know. He's he's impressive. He's impressive. He's an impressive guy. Favorite MMA show or podcast other than MK? I don't listen to any of them I might on occasion on occasion listen to man and uh is it man in the hat man the man the whatever the fuck it is man in the myth I think it is so man and the man in the hat which is kind of a silly name <laughs> but uh no shouts to those guys uh Sean L. Shoddy and uh, Chuck Mindenhall I'll listen to them on occasion but in general and again I've said this before it's not out of spite it's not out of like fuck those guys or whoever it's nothing to do with that I found myself when I was watching and listening to other MMA podcasts, I found that it had a very dramatic impact on my own thinking in a way where I wasn't coming up with my own ideas. And I'd rather be right or wrong on my own. You want to hear what other people have to say, especially if they have like wise things to say. And so I, I try to make time for it in that sense, but I really don't, um, I don't want to be influenced in that way. Uh, when Contender Series is back, would you consider having Laura Senko on MK to break it down like what you did in your Sirius XM show? No, probably not. 
Not that I wouldn't want to. I think Laura has a great mind for the sport, but I don't think it would work for the show. Uh, did Laura get paid for that? She did not. I'm gonna I'm gonna end on this one. You got no thumbs up, but I kind of would like to get to it, and then we can call it a day on here. Um, how did you financially survive when you first started out your career in MMA media? As I'm assuming it wasn't the most rewarding in terms of salary back then. This is a true story. <laughs> so the place that I was working at the time, okay, so I had a job um, lobbying basically on Capitol Hill, or I, I didn't spend much time there, but um, you know. That was what the company I worked for did, and I had various assignments, and it was so awful, and I hated it so much. I was desperate to get out of it, so then I took another job, and then at that job, which was also not necessarily all that great, but there was a weird thing that had happened. Now, Bloody Elbow at this point is in full swing, okay? So this is around 2007-ish. Um, there was, I was working in one of these office buildings with you know a gazillion floors, in, in DC and there was a company that worked above us and this is a true story that um, they didn't secure their internet so what I would do is I would bring my personal computer my laptop to work and I would have it to the side and mostly it'd be closed right like most of the day but on my lunch break, or I'd get there early, or I'd stay late, or when my boss wasn't looking, or whatever, and this is terrible, I don't really recommend this, but I did this, um, I would post to, to Bloody Elbow. Like, and this is when, this is when the reverse chronological format was big on blogs, you guys remember that? When like, you know, you would just read blogs, and then they would put a post up, and it would just stack on top, and now that's still kind of the way, but like, you can arrange things a little bit differently. This is when it was strict reverse chronological order. And, uh, so, the law, well, I think it was a law firm, they, who had the free internet, they never ever put a block on it. So, this lasted for a, mm, several years where I could take the laptop or my phone uh, when phones got better and better, and I could just blog more or less, not in totality, but I could more or less blog from work. And what I would also do on top of that is, um, if I had to take a radio interview, I would get requests for radio. I was the editor of Bloody Elbow at the time. I would go down to a different floor ahead of time and try and find an open room on like basically trespassing on someone's comp company property. And then I would try and quietly take the call in there. Sometimes I would go in the street and I would hide in the alleyway so that coworkers couldn't see me. Um, there was one time I had to hide under my desk, turn all my lights off because it was a, such an important interview. I forget which one it was uh, in terms of like the, the content, but it was when Chad Dukes was on with LeVar Arrington here in the city and it was about breaking news. It was something big and I had to do it um, basically by hook or by crook in any way I could. I just built up my career over and over and over again. And then around 2009 or so, uh, Washington City Paper did a feature on me, which kind of made the jig was up at that point. Like work kind of got wise to it. But at that point, you could begin to post, I think, a little bit off phones. I can't remember exactly how I adapted. Um, and then around 2010, uh, SB Nation made me a full-time offer. And I think I went full, full, uh, like January of 2011. So to answer your question... Um, I was a shitty employee 
at a place I worked because I refused to let this go away. And then, dude, don't misunderstand me. Like, when I got home on weekends, the whole the whole time, just constant, constant, never, ever, ever, ever taking my foot off the gas. I realized if I was one of these guys who was like, I mean, here was here was basically the choice that I made. I could do the job well enough while doing all this side bullshit, not to like really succeed at the job, but not to like, you know, I never got warnings for bad work or I got raises every year like everyone else does. You know, 3%, you know, like what they always do. And um, I did all that stuff. I made, I made it work. But the, the reality is, like, I, I knew that if I kept that up and I didn't fuck up on the job too much, I could, I could just kind of wait it out until I built enough with the MMA where I could convince um, SB Nation at the time or Vox Media to give me a full-time job. If you actually go back and you read the article in the Washington City paper, um, you'll see in there, I explicitly told the guy, because I was like begging for a full-time job. I was like, yeah, and I, you know, he wants a full-time job and to be paid for it. That's his goal. Because I had a show on the weekends on 106.7 The Fan, previously WJFK, called MMA Nation. And so I was broadcasting over the weekends. I was like, dude, when is someone from my job going to hear this shit? Like, this is going to really affect me. I don't know if they ever really did, which was kind of funny. But the Washington City Paper article kind of blew the whole thing up. But um, so that's how I did it. Lie, cheat, and steal. (laughs) That's really, that's that's what I did. All right. Uh, Do me a favor. I didn't steal, but everything. Well, I kind of stole. I kind of stole. Thumbs up on the video. Hit subscribe. Thank you guys so much for watching. MK, live tomorrow. You, me, BC, the whole nine, um, and everything else in between. So lots of content. Bellator is tomorrow as well. Don't forget about that. So I appreciate it. All right, until next time, appreciate you guys watching. Stay frost.